Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. The sounds you're hearing are from a sound installation called Octet by Matthew Rogalski. And what you'd see when you encounter this installation are eight microphones hanging from a tree. But coming out of those microphones are the sounds, in fact, because microphones can also be used in a reverse way and uh, act as loudspeakers. And vice versa, of course, a loudspeaker could be a microphone. And the uh, sounds that are coming out of these microphone or speakers uh, are recordings between the 1950s and into the 1970s made by W.H. Gunn. He was a uh, very early nature recordist in Canada and uh, did a lot of recordings uh, near where Nesa is uh, in the Algonquin uh, Park area. And uh, he was in many ways a pioneer in for Canada as far as nature recording goes and predates other people like Dan Gibson and others who became more well-known. But uh, W.H. Gunn had uh, connections to the uh, Utica area as he uh, collaborated with the Cornell Lab for Ornithology. So I uh, spoke with uh, Matt Rogalski about Octet and, um, and about listening and recording and um, how these things change in different contexts as uh, Matt has a, a ver- varied background that includes sound engineering uh, making sound installations, making uh, electroacoustic compositions. And uh, we talked about uh, different ranges of approaches that he takes. I also mentioned that um, in the second part of the show, near towards the end, we'll share some of the recordings from the May 30th performance that NASA did online, featuring the music of David Eagle. But for now, here's my conversation with Matt Rogalski. start first a bit of background on your collaboration with Laura Cameron first of all and in because you've done other work together prior to this project and uh, tell us a little bit about Laura and a bit about yourself as far as your mutual backgrounds and and uh, how they overlap in this research you're doing. Right well uh, <clears throat> Laura my partner of many years is a geographer and uh, she teaches in uh, the, the uh, at Queens in Geography, and we've uh, she has a lab there called the Sonic Arts of Place Lab, 
because um, she's been more and more interested in uh, having students do sonic research. And, uh, and, and, and through, through sound, we come to work together because I'm also really interested in sound and space and place and anything, you know, you can, you can fit almost anything into geography, which is why I've come to really love it as a discipline because <clears throat> yeah, anything that has a spatial aspect is automatically something you can talk about as a geographer. And uh, you know, I started going to geography conferences with Laura because I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there and, and, and was presenting there as well with, with her. Um, and finding, yeah, there's a real, there's a strong current of interest in, uh, in sonic geographies, you know, since, since the 90s anyway, we've, there's been a, a real <clears throat> developing interest in that area. So we, uh, we picked up on William Gunn as an interesting character to focus on in Canada. Laura came across him in a uh, in the course of other research. She found some of the, some traces of his work in archives in the British Library, I think, and then uh, realized that <clears throat> in the British Library is this vast sound archive that Gunn had recorded, uh, which is also represented in the Macaulay Library of Environmental Sound at Cornell, because he had a strong connection with with Cornell um, and the ornithology department there. Um, and, and so Gunn just turns out to be this incredibly interesting guy who is very forward thinking in terms of uh, his work as an environmental consultant. He, <clears throat> he was an independent consultant to you know, oil companies and other industries where he really provided, you know, even though he was hired by the company, he was, he was there to provide a, a, an objective viewpoint or a non-industry viewpoint, not necessarily supporting so he, you know, as a as an arm's length kind of consultant, he was a pioneer in that in that area, in uh, in Canada, and started a, um, a a consulting firm with a couple of other people. Um, what uh, time frame are you talking about? Um, well, he was in. Uh, I know he was in, in 1959. He was in Venezuela to uh, consult with the oil. The big oil company there was it Imperial Oil. It was was the one of the world's biggest oil companies at the time that was developing oil fields in Venezuela. So I know that you know, in the, he was active in the 50s, but that extended you know, into the 80s, 90s. He, uh, he was a consultant on the CN Tower project and how it would affect uh, birds and, uh, and, and, and various studies to do with runways at airports. Um, there's, there's lots to unpack in, in Gunn's life uh, for sure. And, and his fascination with recording is is, is really uh, amazing. Like he he was a an early user of uh, parabolic reflectors, and and um, I need to learn more about this. But he he refined the calculations and had his own parabolic reflectors spun out of metal in Toronto. You know, at a time when you couldn't buy one commercially, he was he, he was designing them and having them made. Um, but that he was preceded at the by in use of parabolic reflectors by people at Cornell. But I think he he put work into making them more more precise. And this this gets into uh, maybe you know the character of his um, his collecting because he really was you know looking for specimens and trying to isolate them in their in the environment. So even though he was quite a holistic thinker in terms of ecosystem and the environment, his collecting is very much like, you know, moths on a 
pinboard or something like trying to really isolate that perfect specimen of uh, of a call from a particular bird bird and um, so you know he 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 he's connected to you know the history of museum uh, collecting in, in that sense uh, and and the piece that I made this octet piece which is uh, going to be installed um, this summer is sort of re uh, referencing that that practice and questioning it I suppose in terms of like how how it really divorces one one sound from everything else um, and and you know that's suggestive of the way that we've often thought about the environment as being apart from ourselves or um, <clears throat> that that we can you know imagining that we can we can study uh, facets of an ecosystem apart from each other that's you know kind of a big uh, fallacy right that people have often um, overlooked in, in, the, in the research but more and more we, we realize we can't ignore how everything is interconnected so this you know the in the in this piece I'm using guns recordings uh, from the 1950s of made made in and around uh, the area where we're presenting the piece um, all across uh, well near Algonquin Park and um, as far away as Manitoulin Island, I think <clears throat> I found recordings from the early 1950s of, of bird songs. And the way they're presented in this piece is, is also with reference to the way Gunn tried to popularize bird song by playing it to audiences in lectures um, and playing it at full at, at regular speed, but then playing it slowed down. And that's you know a really wonderful way to reveal this, all the, the minute details of each song. So in this, in this, uh, the way I've presented the recordings from the, uh, from Gunn's archive, which are all from the Macaulay Library by permission, um, you hear Gunn introducing each of the recordings, and then that's followed by the recording played back at a slower speed. Uh, I think at twenty percent of its original speed. So it sounds swoopy and divey and kind of uh, more like whale song than bird song at that point. Um, um, and, and the sound is all emanating from little microphones that are turned around and repurposed as little speakers. So these are common, you know, sort of stage type vocal microphones, SM58s, and they're hanging in the tree and each one is a little speaker. And again, it's a kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of fun with the idea of birds as performers that here are these, you know, these characteristic vocal mics and uh, uh, they're, you know, they're emanating sound rather than gathering it, but just the, the physical uh, presence of the microphone sort of begs like, well, where's the singer? That's true. So that was the, that was the motivation behind using microphones rather than speakers was that, that uh, placing the focus on, on uh, the, the world of the tree or the trees in around that tree. Yeah, I mean, it's rough. It's it's meant to evoke birds as performers, and uh, it's a little, you know, I mean, visually, it's just kind of nice to see a bunch of microphones hanging in a tree. But um, 
but then to realize that you know as you get closer you see the visual and then you get closer and you hear whispery sounds and then you realize where's the source of the sound and you can track it down and realize you know that, and that's a little bit surprising kind of fun to, to reaffirm a visitor to realize that um, that this technology you know is equally well suited to being to distributing sound as as much as gathering it. Um, I wanted to get back to something you mentioned uh, earlier uh, was the, the you talked about a kind of holistic approach to uh, to uh, the environment and did, did you find that with your contact with the geograph geographers that that expanded your um, approach to thinking about the environment than, than how you may have previously thought of it as, as a composer or sound artist? I think very much so. Like through, through my partner Laura's work, I've really been exposed to, you know, a lot of deep thinking. In, in some ways, you know, people are coming to sound anew in, in geography and some of the things that they're finding are kind of, you know, seem kind of, uh, well, we already figured that out, you know, in some, in some, in some other place, but geographers are coming to it uh, more and more and, and it's fun to uh, learn from their, even if, even if the technical stuff is new to them, the ideas behind what, what people are trying to convey and uh, research or um, maybe, you know, uh, they're apart from what I'm, what I might find if I were to go to, you know, look at the latest, uh, you know, uh, musicological journal or um, yeah, it's, I, I appreciate the, and because geography is so, such a big umbrella for so many people doing so many different interesting lines of research. Um, you know, I've been involved in artist panels and um, e events that are, you know, more sort of oriented towards creative geographies or experimental geographies. Um, and those, you know, those kind of opportunities are really exciting because then we get the geographers in the room who are, you know, they want to, they want to go further with, uh, with the research and, and be more, well, you know, the, the research creation aspect of, of um, presenting research is more and more honored and important, I think. So there's more opportunities for geographers and other you know, people who want to make creative work out of research to present it in a way that's, uh, that's within the, the, you know, the, the, the realm of uh, visual art or sonic arts, but also can be said to be <clears throat> practical, you know, real research um, and, and accepted as such by, you know, bodies like Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Are there differences when you undertake a creative project that where it's in the context of academic research that you you have to approach it differently or or is it more just how you talk about it and reframe it that's different? Um, interesting. I mean, I think because I've been doing my, my own work coming from a particular angle for a long time, I don't feel like if I'm working, if I, if I say I'm working in a research creation mode it's not that much different from working in other modes but i think you have an obligation if you're calling it research creation to be able to 
point to the research, right? That there's there's this, uh, you know, because Laura and I spend a lot a lot of time going through uh, doing interviews with people on gun, going to various archives across southern Ontario, uh, working to have guns archive part of guns remaining archive purchased and brought to Queens, which happened, uh, which is pretty exciting. We have a big collection of his tapes here now. Um, you know, so so we there's a there's a lot of underpinning research, um, and this uh, this piece octet is just one sort of expression of, you know, a response to that research, um, and um, there's there's been other interesting, similar uh, outcomes. Uh, Laura and I had the, the opportunity to collaborate on a piece that we uh, installed at an outdoor location that called Fieldwork near Perth, Ontario. Fieldwork was a, a, a sort of a land art installation site for 10 years and it's it's now after that 10 years it's taking they take the organizers are taking a break so but for the last two years two summers we had a solar powered piece up that was uh, also um, you know a gun uh, a piece of gun research William Gunn and um, you know in that, in that case we were also using his his field recordings. Uh, it was a, whole, a different, a different piece altogether than, than this one. But um, you know, still thinking, you know, using those historic recordings. In that case, we had recordings from um, from the Algonquin Park of White-throated Sparrow, and from the Adirondacks, the White-throated Sparrow. So two sides of the border, and we were there in, near Perth, Ontario, which is like equidistant between the two places. And it's also on the path of this A to A trail, which they're trying to make, which would connect the Adirondacks with the Algonquin Park. So uh, in that case, you know, our piece was kind of like extending with big ears to, to hear, the, hear the birds in those two places. Um, and as an outdoor installation, we also had um, a live element of a, a live microphone that was just sitting there on a, on a stand in the middle of the, the under a tree and in front of a bench, so you could you could hear the sounds of the immediate environment blended with the these songs of these long dead sparrows. And um, I was I was interested also to know because you've done many pieces using other sound types of sound sources, synthetic sounds or contact mics, and you did all, a lot of research on David Tudor and, mm -hmm. and his techniques for generating sound through analog systems mm -hmm. um, and and actually even the the compare uh, interest to compare tutors to say rainforest to working on these nature recordings mm. uh, rainforest is a kind of sound generated from objects um, and but uh, he uses this kind of naturalistic title um, I was but uh, which kind of sets it up as a kind of listening as if it's an environment, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, so I was just interested in that. Is there a continuum maybe between, you know, uh, working on other types of sound installations to working with uh, natural sound, or in this case, birds? Well, um, you know, if I could, uh, you know, relate what we're doing to to rainforest. You know, ra rainforest is a certainly can admit lots of environmental sounds <clears throat> as well as electronic sounds. Uh, the, one of the interesting things for me with rainforests has always been how 
the two become uh, ambiguous when you when you perform them through these physical loudspeakers, these resonating objects. So an electronic sound could easily be mistaken for an acoustic recording of an insect or, or vice versa, right? An insect recording could sound very electronic. So the ambiguity is interesting to me in those cases. Um, I think, again, to, like, to relate it to rainforest, the sound field of this piece octet is um, there's a reminiscence just because there are you know eight there are many points of sound around you so you have a feeling of being a little bit enveloped uh, in sound. Um, I'm not even so much making feeling like I'm making distinctions between electronic sound and acoustic sound. I I mean there is and I, I'm using more and more environmental sound. I think. Partly because you know I've gotten better equipped to do uh, field recording in the last 15 years, and, and I've got lots more interesting possibilities now. Um, so, and the richness of that you know acoustic sound to begin with is what's really you know uh, awesome about using environmental sounds. Um, you know, and, and I could contrast that maybe with you know if I use electronic sounds, it's often the simpler sounds that I want to hear, not the complex ones. Um, and yet I still, you know, I feel like when I'm working with sound, it's like this material that's just, it's at least, you know, once it's, uh, you know, available to work with as a malleable thing, I feel like I, I, I find it hard to divide it up into, you know, what you might say the natural sounds and the non-natural sounds. But, so as a listener, you feel you listen to it the same way. You, you know, how, do, how, do, how does one listen? I mean, I have been thinking more lately about how I listen and about where I listen from, particularly positionality of listening. And when, we t when you start to talk about, you know, uh, cultures of whiteness, you know, for instance, or in terms of uh, uh, musicology or acoustic ecology or, you know, field recording, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, things that I feel like I, I need to question that I maybe wasn't questioning until fairly recently. You know, there's so there's I, I'm 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 aware that there's a huge like this is a lifetime learning. <laughs> we need a few lifetimes uh, anyway, and 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 I'm I'm just uh, trying to grapple with. How to how to change my practice or how to be more inclusive or more I don't know it's listen to admit admit men other voices try to um, do collaborations as much as possible with other people uh, who are who are working on you know interesting conceptual and you know problematic um, stories. I had, you know, great opportunities recently to work with um, people like Lisa Ravensbergen, who's a theater maker from Vancouver, you know, on a wonderful personal piece about her father and uh, residential schools. And I don't know, through, through sound, you know, being able to do sound design for projects like that, I feel like it's informing the way I think about things. And, Actually, that's true. I, doing sound design is a great 
way of expanding your horizons, intellectual horizons, uh, uh, as a as an artist, because uh, you're you're having to listen and think like the other person if you're if you're creating sound for them. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then so you have to kind of get inside their head. Yeah. It gives you access to uh, stories and narratives and perspectives that you wouldn't have uh, mm -hmm. thought of reaching out to on your own. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I very much like working on other people's projects doing you know post-production or you know uh, audio recording i do a lot of engineering for other people musical projects and poems and poetry and so on and you've also done a lot of engineering for rock rock or yeah rock I, or I, still enjoy, I really i really enjoy producing you know sort of conventional sort of song oriented musics <laughs> and how is the listening different in that case as an engineer that's in really that case, as it is from when you're a creator it's really interesting i still think of myself as a sound artist or you know somebody who's like i think of sound as being plastic and and when i'm you know imagining sound worlds for i don't know different parts of a song you know what's the core what's the what's the ambience of the chorus going to be versus the ambience of the you know the um the bridge you know there's you know there's I'm, 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 I pay a lot of attention, I think, to, uh, to different acoustic spaces and, and um, I love using impulse responses of different kinds to, to, to inflect different parts of a song with uh, different characters. So I, I make a lot of impulse responses uh, wherever I go. So what are, they, what are they, what are impulse responses? Pardon me? What are they, what are impulse responses? Oh, impulse responses are, um, little uh they're kind of like acoustic snapshots of a space so if you were to go into a room and clap your hands and listen to the echo uh and listen to the sound die away in the room that might be an example of an impulse response you the impulse is your clap and the response is how the room echoes or reverberates afterwards and uh, if you make a recording of that you can use it to process digitally with other sounds you know it's a called convolution and the mathematical complex multiplication of two signals and you end up with a third signal which has the acoustic imprint of the space put onto the other recording so it's a great way of making sounds appear you know in acoustic spaces that they never were in originally and you find that being used more and more in uh, film production and so on you know if you're on a set for a film that's expensive to rent you want to get the acoustic imprint of that place so you can use it in post-production so you know you might make an impulse response by well there's fancy ways to do it and there's cheap and cheerful ways to do it and i often just do it with a balloon pop um, which is really you know not optimal but pretty good for but you use a balloon pop instead of clapping your hands or something like that well is that maybe um you want you want to have a, a, sh a loud sharp sound that will activate as many frequencies in the space as possible so a balloon pop is maybe more low frequency it's maybe more akin to like a pink noise burst or something um if you clap your hands you you don't there's not a lot of low frequencies so it's mostly the highs and so you want something that is going to represent these spaces as, as well as you can under whatever conditions um 
So I find a balloon pop is, is nice and loud and does okay. And, and you, can, you can always you know, tweak the recording later to enhance the high frequencies or whatever. But um, yeah, I'm sort of a, a, you know, an impulse response tourist. I carry a, a little kit and a Zoom recorder wherever I go. So if I find myself in a church or something where I have you know, 30 seconds on my own to pop a balloon without interfering with anybody else's uh, activities, I'll do it. <laughs> and churches are particularly, uh, I mean, you find from church to church, there's uniqueness to every space. So. Oh, yeah, sure. Or even, you know, if you, you can make multiple impulse responses in one church and you get all kinds of interesting variations and they're all potentially useful for, uh, for something later. I just keep collecting them, and, and then I find uses for them eventually. What about a what about a small room like you're in a, in right now? Any room that uh, you know you, has has its own uh, qualities of reflective surfaces and absorptive surfaces. So even in this little office I'm in now, it would, uh, with bookshelves and stuff, there might still. I mean, there would be. Uh, you know, an acoustic quality to sounds heard in this room. So some of that could be conveyed with an impulse response. And most of the um, digital audio workstation type tools these days have a plugin that is called a convolution reverb, or you, if you look for it, you'll probably find that you, you know, you, you have one if you didn't know you had it already. Um, and, and then you can, you, what's also interesting about those convolution plugins is you can, you can use any sounds in them. You can take any two sounds and mash them up and you'll get a third one, which is a combination of the two that went in. So it doesn't have to be a balloon pop recording or anything to do with an impulse response. It could just be some random piece of audio that you know, puts its, in, its acoustic imprint on the other thing. It's a great way to experiment with transforming sounds. In terms of researching Gunn and uh, the other ornithological researchers at Cornell and his other colleagues, um, is this is is there a different perspective, pers position, or perspective that needs to happen? Well, it's listening it's, to the environment and birds. It's interesting, sort of tricky territory. I mean, I'm trying to untangle my own ways of listening and and be more of a generous listener. I think um, I've been an impatient listener a lot of my life um, or uh, an instrumental listener. Someone, you know, if there's an occasion to listen, I'm listening. Um, people like uh, Pauline Oliveros encourage, you know, listening as widely as possible all the time, which I think is more in the direction that I want to be. So, so how is that different than, so how, what it means to widely listen versus uh, listening um, instrumentally? Instrumentally, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I could relate the sort of instrumental listening to, you know, Gunn's practice with the uh, parabola, yeah, that it's, um, it's a reductive way of listening and it makes the object that's being gathered into well, an object, more, you know, it's a, it may, it, it's trying to package listening into uh, useful 
pieces useful you know, for other purposes. You're abstracting from the environment something singular. Yeah, I guess, yes, that's, the, yeah. And, and the other approach would be what then? Well, I think um, I could, I could mention, um, and I, I'm still not sure that I can talk about this term fully understanding it because I don't have a copy of the book yet, but uh, Dylan Robinson is a uh, author um, who's got a new book out called Hungry Listening, which is about cultures of, well, it explores some cultures of settler listening um, and maybe presents some alternative ways of thinking about listening. So it's, it, it's um, you know, hung, hungry listening, as I understand it, is this kind, is that kind of acquisitive, um, greedy listening without, without everything a, around you, without a generosity uh, or attention to the way things are interconnected. Um, so I guess for me right now, it's, you know, it's as simple as trying to be more attentive to, well, in, attentive to the way things are, are interconnected. And part of that is following my partner, Laura Cameron in her interests. And, you know, we, she's, she's uh, getting into some marsh studies and so on. And we're visiting these places and getting right down in the marsh and I just like to feel more really connected to the things that I that I'm interested in recording and understanding more of about the bird life and the plant life and you know until only recently I, I wasn't that interested in learning anything deeply and I'm, I'm still a, a super beginner um, you know even learning bird songs and stuff but through through working on Gan and 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 and, and thinking uh, with the help of people like uh, Dylan Robinson to uh, you know sort of spur some new ways of thinking, I'm finding it very uh, like a really fascinating time. And now COVID, of course, is like puts another spin on everything, which is totally fascinating. Um, so, how has that impacted your listening? Well. Um, you know, we've maybe uh, like a lot, a lot of us have experienced um, somewhat of a reduction in ambient noise, which is interesting to uh, feel. Um, there's, you know, some of that has come back already, but still it's, it's for a downtown location, you know, here in Kingston where I live, it's remarkably quiet, quieter than it was before. On a on a daily basis, and um, the there's a lack of planes going over. Everybody, well, many people have commented on that. That you know, you can go out in the in the country and look up at the sky, and you just don't see a lot of contrails, um, and you don't have the the, the 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 accompanying noise either. So, um, yeah, I guess you know, so small things like that that add up you know there's there's I feel like there's a pause right now still which is uh, welcome it's it's going to be hard for so many people though and that's the sad part is that for all the good it's doing there's 
and a lot of suffering that comes along. You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC Wave Farm. And that was my conversation with Matthew Rogelski about his uh, installation octet and uh, other topics. And as promised, we're going to listen to two performances from the uh, May 30th presentation of uh, music by David Eagle that uh, NASA did online. Um, the performances were recorded uh, to video and then broadcast uh, uh, via YouTube to uh, a web conferencing platform called Whereby. And uh, the two pieces of David Eagles we're going to listen to is um, Through Autumn Mist, uh, which is a piece that he performed himself. And you'll notice the sounds kind of moving around. It's uh, nice to listen to it on headphones. And then the second piece is a piece for cello and electroacoustic sounds um, that he composed uh, for cellist uh, Jordan Wisniewski, based uh, in this area up in uh, North Bay. Well, uh, here's two pieces, Through Autumn Mist and Tactus by David Eagle, recorded on May 30th.
Those were two pieces by David Eagle through Autumn Mist and Tactus. Tactus was the cello piece featuring Jordan Wisniewski. Thanks for listening, and uh, we uh, hope to uh, visit you again in a month's time. This is a monthly program that uh, New Adventures in Sound Art in South River, Ontario, produces for WGXC Wavefarm. And uh, we also um, share this show on our own uh, 24-7 radio art stream called NASA Radio. It's at nasa.ca slash nasa hyphen radio. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, join you again.